Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 35. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Burton, Victoria, and Dan for signing up already. Wait. What's happening? Do you hear that music? Ewan. It's finally happening. I've finally gotten through the Romano-British period, and like I promised, I'll do some catch-up with what was happening with our friends up beyond the wall. Now, for those of you who aren't sure what I'm talking about, Ewan is quite possibly our youngest member and really wants to learn about ancient Scotland. And so far, he's suffered admirably while I've spoken at length about England and Wales and Cornwall, Ireland, Gaul, Germania, Rome... You know, even Spain and Africa were in there, briefly. But we've had comparatively little for Scotland other than the occasional conquest by Roman emperors or raids by angry Caledonians, Scotty, or Picty. But back when Ewan first joined up, he asked, well, his mother asked, if I could talk more about Scotland. And so we're doing it. Not just because I like to give my members what they want, or because I'm a big softy but also because this is pretty interesting information, and given that Scotland is part of Britain, it really needs to be in there. So on that note, welcome to the ScottCast, brought to you by Ewan. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about how Scotland got its shape and contours, so next time you visit, you'll know why it looks the way it does. As we've spoken about already, the world went through an enormous ice age that hit its peak at around 16,000 BC. Things were cold. Things were so cold, in fact, that the global drop in temperature was as large as 18 degrees Fahrenheit, or, you know, 10 degrees Celsius. So due to this drop in temperature, massive glaciers formed and moved south skating along on the water that melted in the area where the glacier and the land came into contact. It's called meltwater. And the temperatures were so cold that these glaciers covered most of Scotland. At times, the highest mountains would just peak out. But in general, Scotland was a tundra. Throughout northern Europe, there were massive ice domes, such as the one over what would become Sweden, and that placed an enormous strain upon the continents and the islands upon which they rested. Consequently, a lot of Scotland was becoming compressed under the weight of all this ice and was pushed down. And that was happening all over Europe. For example, there are areas in Sweden that are nearly a kilometer higher now than they had been during this period. That's how heavy these glaciers were. And the rock and crust wasn't just compressed under their weight. There were areas where the pressure could be released, areas where they weren't being crushed by glaciers, and those areas would push upwards to release that pressure. Think about it like a partially inflated balloon. When you press on it, that area will compress, but other areas will push up and out. Pretty much the same principle is at play here. So Scotland was getting crushed by these gigantic ice sheets. And to make matters worse, the ice didn't stay put or just move in one direction. Instead, it was fairly mobile and probably moving at around a kilometer per year. And depending on the weather, the climate was really erratic at this point in history, it would either be advancing southwest or retreating northeast. 
Have you noticed how much of the terrain in Scotland has a southwest-northeast axis? That's why. So the ice scraped and scoured Scotland as it moved back and forth, driven by the changing climate. This grinding and compression, as well as the debris the ice dragged with it, changed the landscape of Scotland forever. Take the north, for example. You'll find hillocks and small locks all over the place, and those were the result of these climactic changes and the glaciers that were moving over those regions. Or in the highlands, where you find jagged mountains, glens, and these enormous U-shaped troughs that have been cut out. Well, these were dug out by glaciers thousands of years ago. And these glaciers did more than just shape the contours of the island. They also redistributed its resources. As they moved throughout the northern reaches of Scotland, they picked up silt, sand, clay, and all the ingredients you need for a successful farmland, and carried them south. When the weather changed, the glaciers began to melt, thus releasing some of what they were carrying with them. Some of the most fertile areas of Britain owe their fortune to the materials that have been uprooted from northern Scotland by glaciers. Okay, we're moving forward in time now, and the world is beginning to warm up. The melting glaciers created great rivers that ran out of the southern uplands and saturated much of the region. And actually, as the ice retreated, the region itself began to lift up, now that it was relieved of all that pressure it was under. So the climate warmed up, and it actually really started to speed up at around 11,500 BC. And soon there were trees in Scotland such as hazel, oak, elm, birch, pretty much all the trees that you would expect that the druids would be interested in. And as they grew, their leaves would fall in autumn and enrich the soil. And over many, many years, Scotland began to develop wooded areas with dense canopies. Starting at around this time, and continuing for about another 6,000 years, a major feature of Scotland began to develop, the peat bog. The warmer weather brought with it rain, and with all that rising damp, came the peat. And thanks to these bogs, we're able to piece together as best as we can the early history of Scotland. Now during this warming period, animals such as caribou and reindeer moved into the area. I mean, it was still cold, it just wasn't as cold as it had been at the early part. And these animals would help spread the growth of vegetation throughout Scotland. But it didn't last. At around 9,400 BC, there was a cold snap that essentially chased out all life out of the area. And actually, right around this time, Scotland started to get rocked by a series of earthquakes that really wouldn't stop until the Romano-British period. And these weren't little ones either, somewhere as big as seven points on the Richter scale. Anyway, so Scotland is frozen, right? But it was only a cold snap, so it was pretty much over by 8,000 BC. And things started to warm up again. Actually, this region was moving towards what's called a climactic optimum for Scotland. And actually, it reached that optimum at about 3,200 BC, but that's getting ahead of the game here. And in the process of this warming period, there was a rapid growth of trees and other vegetation. By the time the region hit its optimum, things were about 2 to 3 degrees warmer Celsius than they are now. And this meant during that warming period, the region exploded with growth. And with that growth came animals. The southern uplands would have been unrecognizable to us. There would have been a dense wood, thickly populated with vegetation, so much so that it actually would have been dark, almost like a dense rainforest. 
While this temperature shift would have pushed out the caribou and the giant deer that I love so much, new animals would have eagerly moved in. You'd have red deer, boars, otters, bears, wolves, and of course people. And following the retreat of the ice, it's estimated that people edged northwards at about a kilometer per year, which amusingly is about the same speed that we think the glaciers advanced when they were coming down. So we have these people starting to move into Scotland. Why go north? Well, the populations of the prehistoric tribes were expanding, so more food was necessary. That means that in addition to needing greater areas for gathering nuts and berries, you also need greater plots of land for hunting. Some estimate that the size of a single hunter's territory expanded to about four square miles. That's a lot of land. And as those populations expand and the resources get taxed, there will be conflict. So the best way to avoid that issue is to move into uninhabited land, like the lands in the north. I mean, up there you had animals, berries, roots, nuts, you name it. And no one else was up there. I mean, is there any reason not to go up there? So we start to see settlements expanding into Scotland as the ice retreated. Now, like we spoke about earlier, as those glaciers retreated, Scotland, which had been crushed by the weight of the ice, rebounded. In fact, it lifted as much as 46 feet in places. But this wasn't entirely uniform. And not only that, at the start, the land was rising faster than the sea level, which was also rising due to glaciers melting. So all of a sudden, you had extra beach space that didn't exist. And during this period, Scotland was being colonized by hunter-gatherers and fishers. For example, at Kinloch on the island of Rome, we have found a settlement that is dated to around 66,000 BC, though it could have been used for much longer than that. We think that these early humans might have been there to gather bloodstone, which would have been quite useful for their tools, since we're still in the Stone Age. Not too far to the south is another dig site, and again, this is in the Hebrides, just like Rome. And this one's on the Isle of Colonsey. There they found hundreds of thousands of hazelnut shells that have been charred from roasting, as well as actually the roasting pits that they've been charred in. What they would actually do is they'd dig a pit, dump the hazelnuts into the pit, and then light a fire over it to roast them. Now doing that would not only improve the flavor, but it would also help them keep longer. Now the fact that we found their shells suggests that those people, of course, probably shelled them and might have even mashed up the nuts into a paste to make for easier transportation. Now, we always think, when we think about native people and early man and whatnot, we think of people living in harmony with nature and whatnot. Well, interestingly, they wouldn't just climb up the trees and go get the nuts. Instead, they'd actually cut the trees down to obtain the nuts. We aren't sure why they cut the trees down, but at the very least, it shows a lack of concern for future harvests. And there's actually one last dig site from the Hebrides from this period. And this time, it's on Isla, which is just to the south of Colonsey. And this dig site is dated to about 6500 BC. The really interesting part of this dig site is, well, well, actually the really interesting thing about it is just about everything. Dig sites are always interesting. But one of the interesting things about this dig site is that it seems that the ancient settlers might have burned the surrounding area to create a pasture in order to make hunting a little bit easier. Now, why do you want hunting to be a little bit easier? Well, like I mentioned, this was a period of immense growth for Scotland, 
with a rapid spread of dense forests and abundant wildlife. Sounds like a good thing, right? Well, this is Scotland, and it seems like the story of Scotland is one of toughing it out through adversity. So even the new vegetation and animals, which would seem like relatively good news, carried with it its own difficulties. These early humans were probably used to hunting on plains and hills, as their ancestors had done. But at this point in time, Scotland was in a period of immense change, and was getting covered by a dense wood. Which meant that the animals they were used to hunting were either dying off, or moving on. And these new animals were either adept at hiding amongst the growth, such as the wild boar, or were unreasonably mean-spirited and dangerous, like the auroch, which were basically murderous cattle. So now the hunters couldn't just lay in wait near a choke point on their prey's migratory pattern, such as a river crossing. Instead, they would have to learn how to stalk through the undergrowth as silently as possible in order to catch their meal unaware. The early inhabitants had to learn how to use snares, pit traps, and all of a sudden, hunting required a great deal more skill and luck than it had done before. I mean, sure, hunting has always been hard, but now it's really hard. And the finds that we've managed to uncover seem to support that. We found the body of an elk, for example, that had survived at least two attacks by early humans in Scotland before dying in a bog. Two attacks, and they still didn't manage to recover it. So that's a tremendous amount of wasted energy, not to mention wasted resources because they're losing all those flint weapons and whatnot. It seems that hunters probably failed a great deal more than they succeeded. So to be a great hunter was probably an enormous honor. And that might account for the presence of antlers and other hunting-related artifacts being found at burial sites. But these people weren't hunting alone. Starting at around 6000 BC, they had dogs. But these weren't the dogs like we have. They weren't the sweet companions we've grown to love despite missing legs and cross eyes and cauliflower ears, you know, such as Kerouac. These were much closer to wolves than dogs, and they probably looked a great deal like German shepherds. So they probably helped a great deal on the hunt. But one thing they might have done to make hunting a little easier for themselves and their dogs was to burn a section of the woodland to make an open pasture where the prey could be more easily spotted. So getting back to what we were talking about earlier, that might be why there's a large burn section at the dig site at Isla. I mean, if it was a big open pasture, you'd be able to see your prey pretty easily. Or it might be that someone let a fire get out of control and just burned down a big area. We can't say for certain. Anyway, back before we got onto this tangent, we were talking about sea levels and rising temperatures. Well, like I mentioned a bit ago, the glaciers melted and the land was rising faster than the sea because of the released pressure. Well, that didn't last, and things flipped at around 5500 BC. So now the sea level was rising faster than the land. And the sea moved in so much, in fact, that the firths of Forth and Tay nearly connected. The sea was reclaiming huge tracts of land. For example, Aberfoyle was a coastal town at this period. It's now about 40 miles inland. And the land bridge that we spoke about ages ago, I think it was on our second podcast, you know, the one that helped people get to Britannia, well, that was quickly eroding. Meanwhile, in areas not being encroached upon by the sea, a new type of bog was emerging as well, the raised bog, which is shaped like an upside-down bowl, hence the name. So now you had new bogs rising up as well as a loss of available land thanks to a rising sea level. Things are getting tough. 
Oh yeah, and you still have all those earthquakes I mentioned. And all of this adversity wasn't helped by the fact that there was an enormous tsunami at around this time. We think it was around 5840 BC. It was probably around 26 feet high and came tearing out of the North Sea and laid waste to large sections of Scotland. The people who inhabited the area probably had no idea what was going on. They probably just saw an unusual sight. You know, the shoreline being sucked out to sea, and then all of a sudden a big wave coming in, and they would have had absolutely no time to get away when it came rushing back in. And actually, this tsunami probably also had a hand in further eroding the land bridge between the continent and Britannia. All in all, those early inhabitants must have been more than a little perplexed by the sea and what was causing it to be so angry, and why sometimes it would take the land slowly over the course of years, and other times it would come in with ferocious waves and take it all in mere minutes. The early inhabitants must have not known what to do and what was going on. And speaking of those early inhabitants, let's talk a little bit more about them. And to begin with, we should probably point out that they weren't Scots. And actually, the inhabitants of Scotland wouldn't become Scots until around the 9th century AD, when Kenneth MacAlpin united the Picts and the Scotty under a single rule. And it wasn't until around the 10th century that the term Scotland really became entrenched for the region. And actually, all of this is quite a bit beyond where we are in the podcast, so we should probably back up quite a bit. So these early people, who were they? Well, it's hard to say. One thing we can be certain of, though, is that they weren't Goidelic Celts. Even if we're to assume that there was a Celtic migration, which, as we spoke about in the Members Only podcast, is somewhat in dispute, there's the issue that the rise of the Celtic culture didn't happen until long after people had already thoroughly settled Scotland. So they weren't Goidelic Celts. They were something else. And unfortunately, they didn't leave much of a record for us to review. I mean, there isn't a diary available. So we're forced to look at archaeological sites, such as the one at Isla, and make educated guesses. So let's talk about one of the more recent dig sites we've found that might give us an idea of what kind of people we're dealing with. This site is from around 1000 BC, and again, it's in the Hebrides. It's actually on southern Uist at Clad Halan. But yeah, it's on the Hebrides, and it seems like everything fun is on the Hebrides. Well, the dig site itself is a house which is fairly interesting in itself, but the reason this dig site is so special is the fact that they found two mummified bodies buried beneath the house that were 300 and 500 years older than the house itself. The theory of what happened is that around 1500 BC, the people living there knew that peat bogs could mummify bodies. So when these people died, they placed the bodies in the bog and left them there for between 6 and 18 months. Then they pulled the bodies out. While their skin now looked like leather, and there was clearly some degradation that would have occurred, they still would have been recognizable. And as a bonus, they wouldn't further decompose. They were well-preserved. So they were yanked out of the bog, and then hundreds of years later, they were buried under the house. So what happened to them in the interim? I mean, that's what I want to know. That and who were they? Were they loved ones, or powerful leaders, the great hunters, or maybe there are people who are hated, I don't know. I mean, nobody knows. If they are just loved ones, why keep them so long? And if they are hated, then why keep them in such great condition? If they are powerful leaders, even then, I mean, hundreds of years have passed, so anyone who knew them had long been dead. So, who were they? And during these hundreds of years, what was done with the bodies? 
Were they displayed? Were they kept encased like Egyptian mummies? I mean, these bodies are from around the same time as Tutankhamun. Did they do something like that? Were they objects of worship and veneration? They were clearly taken care of since their bones and various other bits were intact. So what were they? Unfortunately, I don't have a single answer for any of these questions. These two people are a mystery. And that fact, the mystery, is tied up with the prehistory of Scotland. Much of the North during this period is really something of a mystery. Unfortunately, we're going to need to stop right there. But now that we've established how the area got its distinct character, and we learned a little bit about the early people who inhabited it, we'll be able to move on to how these people developed and eventually became the Picts that gave the Romano-Britons so many headaches and so many head wounds. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or you can head over to our Facebook site, facebook.com slash British History. As I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a Today in British History thing, so if you'd like to get that on your feed every day, all you have to do is go over there and click like, and every day on your Facebook, you'll get a new thing on what happened on that particular day on British History. And if you haven't gone and joined the forum, I think you should do so. And I think that's about everything. Thanks for listening.